Tennis is one of the most popular sports around the world and there are plenty of people out there betting on it. This podcast gives you an edge over the market thanks to in-depth analysis from our expert guests. Welcome to Advantage Betters. Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of Advantage Betters. The Pinnacle podcast has already helped those betting on soccer and the NFL. We do regular interviews with people right across the betting industry, but for this series, we're here to help you tennis fans. Joining me today is two very esteemed guests. We've got Dan Weston. Hello, Dan. Hey, Ben. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And we've also got Drew Dinsick, aka Whale Kappa, with us. You all good, Drew? Oh, so good. This is uh, fantastic to be be part of this. Yeah, very exciting. Uh, can't wait to get into some tennis action for the year. And what a way to kick it off with our, our first podcast covering the sport. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Firstly, obviously, I want to I thank you both for coming on. Um, our listeners probably already know a little bit about you both already, but it will probably be useful just to maybe go into to why you're on the show, what it is you can offer listeners. So I'll start with you, Dan, if you could just Maybe tell us a little bit about your experience with tennis betting. Yeah, sure. So I, I got into tennis probably not about, must be about seven or eight years ago now. Prior to that, I was I was kind of always been involved in the sort of gambling industry, pro gambling, etc. So played um, advantage, played a lot of slots in the UK previously to that. And also a couple of years on online poker prior to Black Friday. Um Nowadays, it's more like it's a it's a hard way to make an easy living playing online poker. But um, yeah, it was in the back in the day. It was very good. Uh, and then obviously because of Black Friday, the competition got a lot harder. So I sort of moved into sports. Uh, built a ELO model on tennis initially, which which did really well. But um, eventually, I'm sort of moved into looking at it from a slightly different angle, which is to do with more to do with like projected hole percentages and stuff like that, and then in building building prices based on on that model. And Drew, I know you've you've got quite a big following, and you, you put out a lot of great NFL content during the the regular season and playoffs for NFL. We obviously spoke fairly recently on the Pinnacle podcast. You mentioned briefly about an interest in tennis. We then had a a bit of a back and forth. So just for the listeners, kind of how big of a sport is is tennis for you in terms of betting? Well, uh, for sure, most of the people that uh, kind of followed me on Twitter from Jump Street would know me from putting out tennis picks and tennis uh, modeling information. And uh, I think uh, this will probably be my seventh or eighth Australian Open handicapping. And I used to just focus on the slams just because I was a fan. Uh, and because of the time of year, it's just fun to fun to watch Wimbledon, French Open, and whatnot. And um, then about three, four, four actually four years ago now, uh, I expanded to handicapping on all of the you know all of the five um, hundreds and Masters all the all the way throughout the season. Uh, had great success, shared a lot of information, made a lot of great contacts, and uh, it became my my kind of favorite sport and passion for handicapping for a couple of seasons there. Uh, it's been tougher the last couple of years to have as much interest just because of the way that, uh, you know, the, the, the tour is kind of shaken up in terms of, you know, sort of the, a generation, the lost generation, so to speak, not really ever living up to the hype. And, you know, I kind of lost a little bit of interest from a fan standpoint, but, uh, I think that the second tier of players is really coming on strong and, uh, this is going to be a really fun year for tennis, especially on the men's tour. So, uh, happy to get back involved, uh, kind of on a, on a, on a broader level. Good stuff. And I mean, obviously today we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the Australian Open, but it's also probably a good idea if we to start with kind of zoom out a little bit, maybe talk about tennis betting in general. Um, I'll open up the floor either to either of you two, and maybe you can share some some do's and don'ts when it comes to betting on tennis. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll go first if you like. I mean, the, the, the first thing that I'd say for looking at a grand slam in the opening round is that it, it, it's a marathon and not a sprint. So you've got half of the matches in the whole of the to- both sides of each tournament is played in the first two days. So you can just just don't go too heavy on the first days, not only from a financial standpoint, but also from like a fatigue and time standpoint, because it's it's pretty brutal with so many matches going on at the same time. And and, and on that sort of first round note as well, I would also suggest that 
make sure you do your research with regards to player fitness and condition as well because you've got players turning up into a grand slam who are half fit or not fit at all because they want the first round money and 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 it's really important that you do some sort of due diligence on on the players fitness and, and motivation coming into this tournament absolutely maybe no more important tournament to kind of keep that in mind than the australian open if you kind of go back and comb through the historical data uh, and you look at where upsets happen most often in the early rounds, like it, uh, it is much more likely to see uh, a first and second round upset of a kind of a, a, pre- a premier or a top tier player uh, at, the, at the Australian Open than you would see it at, say, the French Open or Wimbledon or the U.S. Open. And I think a lot of that is just because these guys are coming off of, you know, an offseason layoff. Some of them have, you know, maybe one or two tune-up matches under their belt. Some of them we haven't seen play since, you know, October. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's tough to just jump right in and, you know, have your legs under you when you're going up against a qualifier who's, you know, playing for their life and, you know, got, you know, three matches under their belt and in the, on these courts, on these conditions. Uh, and so you often see at the Australian Open, especially, I feel like you see some, uh, some first and second round upsets. After that, however, you know, like, if you, you know, if the favorites can kind of, you know, avoid the, uh, the early round shocker at the Australian Open, it gets real chalky, in my opinion, and. Uh, and so from round three on, it's, uh, it's tough to really take an approach where you're kind of looking for value in the dogs. Uh, and that's when I kind of pivot towards looking more at the handicaps and totals and, uh, and try to come up with, um, you know, other ways to attack the market than just looking for dogs to back. Um, other thing I'll note really about the Australian Open, and, you know, I think this plays into this year's handicap as well as just kind of in general. Uh, it's obviously summer in Australia. It's obviously warm. Uh, and you know, the, it's been pretty important the last handful of years to really take deep, you know, pretty good care of, you know, who's playing, uh, you know, in the sort of the exposed courts, who's playing in the heat of the day, who is kind of, who is, uh, really laboring through matches, you know, who's taking, you know, f- more, um, you know, more points per game, more games per set, more sets per match, you know, those sort of things are really important to account for, for fatigue, because, you know, as Dan mentioned, you know, these guys aren't fully fit to at this point in the season. Uh, and so you can kind of pretty much pretty quickly cross off uh, some players who may say, you know, spend four or five hours outdoors in the heat of the day, you know, in the, you know, in a 30, 30 degree plus, you know, temperatures, uh, you know, that that guy's not going to be around for week two. So, you, you know, you can kind of do some pretty good process of elimination just based on conditions and, and time on court. So in terms of collating this kind of information, Dan, you mentioned there and, and Drew said he agreed about this, this fitness element. If you're looking to kind of quantify how fit a player might be, are you literally just talking about kind of recent mass, match history, making sure they're up to speed in terms of competitive games that they've played? Or is there other sort of sources of data out there or are you... Can you keep track of kind of who's in training and things like that? What what sort of approach are you taking? You've got to look at it quite intensively if if, if you're going to take it seriously. And a lot of it is just going to be your own research. There's not really like a, a formal um, you know, source out there to provide that type of information. Um, in an ideal world, you would like to see... A, a player play a warm up event, get a couple of matches under their belt at the very least. I'm not, I'm not fussed if they, either, you know, play one warm up event, losing like their third match or something like that. They're competitive, that's fine. Um, but but you wouldn't want to, you know, play necessary to go in cold or not having played this year, or, or you know, coming in with having not played since like halfway through last year would just be in like a horrendous situation. Or you, you might want to look at. The reasons why players have retired in the warm-up events as well, or, uh, yeah, anything like that would be with some, something to look at. So, for example, Roger Federer hasn't played warm-up event this this season so far, whereas he's going into a match at one point oh three against Steve Johnson, who's in the final of a Challenger event tomorrow. And um, yeah, Johnson's no great shakes. He's a, he's a competent hard quarter, you'd say. Um, Probably you would say probably top fifty hard quarter, even though his ranking is a lot lower than that at the moment. And and you know that that's the type of thing you might you, you probably won't see an upset, but you might be able to look at say handicap runs on that type of thing. And you mentioned there obviously hard quarter jumps out, and that's we're talking kind of basic level analysis here. But in terms of for people maybe starting to bet on tennis or trying to advance their their level of tennis betting, just how do you kind of when it comes to analysis of of court preference and how people perform on on different surfaces what kind of work goes into that 
Yeah, so that's that's really really important to try and try and quantify that type of thing as much as possible. Obviously, I've been been writing for you guys for for quite a few years now, so I, I, I've commented a lot on that in in previews and articles. So primarily, you would be looking at for me, I look at anyway service points, one percentages at a given venue, and also aces per game. The two the two metrics tend to go quite hand in hand. So if if a venue has an above average service points, one percentage, it almost always has a above average aces per game percentage, and usually by by sort of a, a, a similar deviation um so then you would want to you wouldn't because the thing is like when you you know you go on like a score scoreboard website or you know atp website or whatever it will just say australian open hardcore now hardcore are it's such a generic term and, and and there's so much more to consider so you know there's different hardcore manufacturers there's different ball manufacturers there's different climatic conditions and all these type of things can really make a considerable effect on on what you would call court speed or conditions as a whole as a whole so i mean i i've got like a list of slow and fast tournaments and then i can kind of look at which players performed best in in the faster tournaments which players have performed best in the slower tournaments um with regards to the australian open i have it pegged at just slightly above average in terms of uh court speed for, for a hard court event so but that's nothing it's nothing out of the ordinary and i don't think it's going to have a major impact some people say that the, the different courts play quicker than others. Some play quicker than others, but that's very, very difficult to quantify in itself as well. And Drew, with you, is it kind of, I know you said you've, your focus has been on slams sort of more recently, but maybe back when you were kind of betting across the, the, the tennis calendar and all the different events, did you find any edge was maybe magnified across a certain surface or were you kind of spread across all the all the events that were on offer? Yeah, no, I, I agree with the kind of dance, you know, uh, um, set up here and you know all hard courts are not created equally um most of my success was kind of concentrated in like time of year like once i had enough data in the database to kind of have a good qualification of like a player's form uh, i did a little bit better so my i don't i don't i think it was kind of coincidental but like you know around the time we get to clay season you know uh, i would i would tend to uh, have my my best uh, suite of results um and then um but you know, just in terms of this court speed and how that impacts players, I, you know, I, I for sure hold the Australian Open as sort of the server's uh, delight as far as the best, you know, the, the, the um, one of the faster hard courts on tour. Um, you know, people would look at, you know, the beginning and the end of the slam calendar and you have two hard court tournaments, the US Open and the Australian Open. But in my mind, they're very, very different tournaments. Uh, and, you know, the US Open plays quite a heck, quite a lot slower uh, than the Australian Open, for instance. And, you know, certain players who, you know, I, and I think you can see this even in results, like, uh, you know, a player like Rafa Nadal, who's been incredible on, you know, on uh, clay, the best clay player in the history of the sport, uh, and then, uh, you know, has taken quite a lot of titles at the US Open. Uh, he's he's really struggled here in Australia. And some of it is the time of year, in my opinion. I mean, I don't think he plays especially well in the first and third quarters of the you know, of, of a calendar year. Uh, but, uh, you know, particularly at the uh, Australian Open, because it's, a, you know, a, a, a court that, uh, you know, that helps amplify the power and the, uh, the impact of your serve, uh, you know, he he's definitely struggles at the Australian Open relative to some of the other hard courts on tour. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with court speed. So, um, you know, that it's, uh, it's one of the faster uh, hard courts on tour, in my opinion, and I think you have to kind of use that as a as a means to help uh, you know sort through some of uh, some of the players who you know live and die by their serve versus other players who are uh, you know count you know who are are more um, you know reliant on their ability to return and 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 create breakpoints in in a way that uh, is harder to do on this surface. And then in terms of these these different courts, obviously there's kind of smaller samples are involved across the season whether it be not so many matches on clay versus obviously you've got the the hard court is bookending the the tennis season is there any issues with kind of data and sample sizes for for each individual surface for either of you two yeah um for me i find grass a major problem because um the the sample size of matches on the surface just to see the grass season just doesn't go on for long enough it helped they added another week to it a couple of years back but it's not nearly enough compared to the other surfaces so so grass is a major problem yeah you can kind of get some insight into how players like to perform on grass because you can look at how they might perform on like the quicker hard courts or, or indoors 
but but it's 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 not exactly an ideal scenario. So yeah, grass is really tricky, definitely. Um, the other surfaces not a major issue. And then, I mean, what we're going to talk about today or probably later on is is kind of like outright markets to start out with the Australian Open. But if we kind of take the view of we're looking at matchups here and, and as the tournament progresses and those those individual games between two players, obviously the it throws another dynamic into the mix. Outright, you're kind of analysing one player and, and their potential. When you're looking at two players in a matchup, it becomes a thing of strengths versus weaknesses and stuff like that. So if you're... If either of you are, I'll start with you, Dan. If you're pricing up a match, what are kind of the the big things really to look out for that you'd suggest to to betters out there? Yeah, I mean, well, to start with, obviously, you're going to want to make sure that the, the players are what you would say equal levels of expected fitness. I think that that's really critical. Um, and generally speaking, following that, I'll, I'll look at a player's um, twelve month numbers on that given surface. In an ideal world, I'd try and treat that surface in isolation just primarily because you do get so many surface or court speed specialists it's really important so for example here you know we've uh, we've got you know reasonably fast hard court tournament so i'm not really interested in how players performed on slow clay for example it's just completely irrelevant so you've got to be quite surface specific and look at the data from some sort of those relevant comparable matches, if that makes sense. And for you, do Drew, two that jump out there, fitness and court surface. Anything you'd add, or, or anything you'd you'd argue potentially is more important? Hmm. Well, for there is definitely some signal in terms of just past experience on a given court. Uh, like, yeah, I mean, in, in your your question about small sample size, I think that was you know the perfect answer. Grass is extremely tough, um, but you know there are for sure. Um, you know, some, there is some signal in, you know, players past performance in a given tournament on a given surface. Uh, I don't know if it's a hundred percent related to just the conditions, you know, matching with that player's strength, or if there's something else that, uh, kind of plays into it. But, uh, I do like to kind of look back through, uh, and see which players have done historically done well, or at least made runs, uh, you know, have a little bit of confidence, uh, and, uh, and then, you know, beyond just kind of. Um, you know, using that as a tool to evaluate a player's overall rating heading into an event, uh, you know, then you get, you know, there's, there's a heck of a lot more you can add to um, any given handicap as you get in deeper into a specific matchup between players. Um, you know, for sure, there is, uh, you know, there are some head-to-head matchups where we have lots of data uh, to comb through to give you some sense of the, uh, you know, how di- you know, different players would attack each other and, you know, how, how certain players match up with each other. Uh, and I think that's a super important part to weave into your handicap, especially as you go deeper into the tournament. I mean, there, you know, as it's not, uh, there's not easy and obvious edges to find uh, when players like Nadal and Federer go, or, or, you know, or, or Djokovic and, and Nadal, when these guys go head to head, you know, the line is pretty clearly known well before the match. Like it's not, uh, there's no surprises. So sussing out, um, you know, an, an edge to bet matches like that is becomes a lot more, um, you know, kind of combing through some of the historical data and really, really, uh, you know, sussing out some some fine-tuned advantages and for the individual players i mean you just have to watch media coverage for for any event and you'll hear oh he's a big server he's a baseline player big hitter he's great on the return how how deep do do you two go into to profiling individual players in terms of their style yeah i've done i've done quite a lot on that um, so the one easy way to, to work out if a player serve orientated or return orientated is just subtract their return points one percentage or break percentage from their either you know relevant their relevant service metrics. So for example, service points one percentage minus uh, return points one percentage or service hole percentage minus break percentage. So the bigger the, the bigger the value, the more service orientated player. The player is so. For example, if you're looking at service points one versus return points one, John Isner wins about seventy four percent of service points on hard court in the last year, and about thirty points on return in the last year on hard court. So it's got a difference of forty four. You compare that to say Roberto Bautista Gu, uh, the difference is twenty nine. So that's a big difference. So you would say that Bautista Gu is obviously a lot more return orientated than Isner is, which is obviously probably no surprise to anyone who's followed tennis. 
Right, so now we can um, potentially begin to, to look at individual players. Obviously, a lot of people here are going to be thinking ahead to, to what's to come for the Australian Open and the, the upcoming season. But maybe if we look back to last year and kind of recap, was there was there anything that jumped out for you two in terms of big shocks or kind of maybe big improvers, potential stars on the rise or, or individual players that really dropped off in terms of performance? I'll give you three each that you can shout out. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Oof. Well, I guess I'll go. I'll go first, and I'll kind of set the table here a little bit. Like we're in a we're in a little bit of a transitioning era here, where um, you know, for the last ten, fifteen years, really, the entirety. You know, actually, really since two thousand five. So yeah, fifteen. We're in we're in a fifteen year spell here, where there were really only four men who were. Um, you know, in contention for any given Grand Slam. Uh, outside of the big four, uh, I think we've had a single slam, one by Del Potro, one by Chilich, and uh, one and a handful by uh, Stan Wawrinka. Um, and that's kind of crazy. So it, it's, a, it's a very elite uh, kind of level uh, to be even in contention to win a slam in tennis on the men's side of the tour. Um, and you know, so you could you had a pretty small pool of of uh, of you know players to pick from if you were getting into any given slam and you wanted to take a future because you know there really wasn't you know there the likelihood that a, a long shot was going to come in on the men's side was virtually nil. Um, that's changing a little bit in my opinion. I feel like the um, you know there was a generation that came up after the big four where there was a lot of promise, a lot of uh, speculation that these guys are going to come in and be the next big thing and challenge as the uh, as the you know as the Nadals and the Federers get older, um, and they, that never really materialized. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, um, a lot of uh, kind of missed opportunities, and you know, no no real growth and development. Injuries derailed some some players' careers, and you know, because of all that, we really um, never never got to uh, uh, see anyone come up and challenge these guys. And we now live in um, you know this uh, kind of two generations separated by about 10 years here where you have the younger players coming up on tour who don't know that they, you know, they don't know any better. They don't know they're supposed to lose to these guys. They're kind of playing a little bit fearlessly. They, you know, they have uh, young legs and, you know, they're able to play more events per year. Uh, and so players like uh, Sissipas and Medvedev and uh, Dominic Team, you know, they're, they're coming up um, and uh, really starting to close the gap between, uh, you know, the level of play. Uh, between the old guard who, uh, you know, is kind of getting up there in years and the uh, and these new guys who who are going to be challenging. And so I would guess over the next uh, kind of two, three years, you're going to see this transition where you start to have uh, some shockers come in, you know, you start to have some long shots come in in these uh, in these um, uh, in these slams. And, uh, you know, 2020, it, it, it could go one of two ways. This could this could be a, a full on replay of last year where you have you know, Nadal take the French in the U.S. and, and Djokovic cleans up in Australia and Wimbledon. Uh, or this could be sort of the first year where you start to see a changing of the guard. And, uh, and um, you know, I think a little bit of that was on display, especially towards the end of last season. So, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fun time, I think, to be covering the sport, to be betting on the sport and to be engaged from a handicapping perspective. So uh, I'll, uh, I'll let uh, Dan kind of... Uh, uh, take it away in terms of who he thinks is coming on uh, out of this next crew of young guys. We said it. We said it last year, Dan. I think I seem to remember a conversation where I was saying, "Are you depressed as a a tennis fan that it it just doesn't change?" And you thought maybe it could be, but it proved not to be. I'm hoping now you're going to suggest there's, there's something to back up that maybe we will see a changing of the guard. There isn't, unfortunately, not from here at the moment. No. I mean, obviously, it's going to have to happen sooner or later. But if you look at the the all all surface data for the ATP tour in the last six months. Number one, Djokovic. Number two, Nadal. Number three, Federer. So yeah, Medvedev's really close to Federer, but it, it's not like they're showing a worse level in the last six months than they were, say, the six months prior to that. So it, if the decline's starting, it hasn't started yet so much, or or the players haven't quite kicked on as much to challenge them. And to some extent, I kind of equate it a bit to, you know, Manchester United when Alex Ferguson was the manager. It was almost like they've got the, they've got this aura around the, uh, these players as well, the the top three in the men's 
I think Serena Williams in the women's as well, you can also say the same thing about you've almost got that mental hurdle to overcome as an opponent to to beat those players. You Not just have you got to beat the other player on the other side of the court, you've got to beat the name, the reputation, the aura as well. And that's difficult. Well, for both of you two, I mean, you're obviously very kind of focused on data and the, the benefits it can bring in terms of data. And you mentioned there this idea of like an aura or a, a mental stumbling block. Is that something that you obviously buy into it? How do you kind of measure it? Or how does that sit with you as, as two people that are very kind of data driven? That's difficult. I mean, I mean, you can look at it from like, say, say statistics of the up-and-coming players versus the elite players compared to the rest of the top 10, for example, is, is one way you can look at it. But it is difficult. And, and as as obviously, I think we, we've got an article series coming up soon. We can, we can demonstrate that the top players aren't more clutch than the other players on the floor. They just win more service and return points, which makes them win more key points. So it's, it's difficult, but... Uh, yeah, you do see chokes against these guys sometimes. Right, so I keep I keep saying we'll get to the Australian Open. We're, we're talking about kind of tennis quite generally. You've touched upon a few things that, that obviously people need to think about. We've, we've kind of said about like the weather, the potential there, the, the court surface and things like that. But now, so specific to Australian Open, you're now set, you're ready to go, you're looking at the odds. What is it, if you say weather... Dan or, or Drew, whoever whoever brought it up before, what is it about the weather? What does it do to the the way the ball travels or or how it bounces off the court that, that people should think about? The the weather is much more of just a, an individual fatigue type of deal. I mean, um, you know, they, there there are for, I, I feel like um, there there have been clear and obvious edges manifest over the last handful of years as they've had extreme heat in Melbourne during the Australian Open, where you could pretty clearly watch a match, see a player like Del Patro or, or the t- there was a couple of obvious ones where, you know, Del Patro, I feel like spent five hours on court in the heat of the day, you know, in a, in a match that, uh, you know, he, she probably should have won in straight sets. And, uh, and then sure enough, two days later, you know, the guy's legs were just absolutely dead and he gets mowed. Uh, and so, you know, there are, there are um, specific ways to, uh, to account for heat and account for fatigue just by looking at number of points uh, that a player has played or you know time spent time spent on court is a little uh, is a little misleading sometimes because um, you know they, there can be other there are delays and it could just be like how uh, you know how the pace of play can influence time on court so I like to look more at number of points played as kind of the ba- the benchmark and I'm like I'm thinking like okay I'm going to calculate fatigue we're going to quantify this I want to know a player who's in the third round of the Australian Open how many points has he played on average uh it, to this point in the tournament and how many play how many points has this player played to get to this point and you can use that to do a pretty good job of uh, kind of coming up with a, a metric, so to speak, that uh, captures fatigue for a given player, and incorporate that in a way that uh, you know is is uh, is kind of fully numerically um, you know part of your handicap, and that's so that's that's both mostly what I'm doing for uh, for capturing uh, fatigue. And if uh, in, in I will hand hand you know go in there and you know fine tune by hand if um, if a player happens to be playing during the heat of the day. Uh, I will, uh, you know, kind of manually turn it up by uh, a, a notch or two here to say, you know, that was an especially bad, uh, you know, 250 points that were played. So um, that's that's my approach uh, to it. And I think uh, it's something that uh, a lot of handicappers kind of use as, as a as a tool in their handicap. Yeah, I mean, and building on from, from what Drew said about that as well, I mean, all players aren't created equally as well so for example if, if john if john isner big serve orientated player has played 250 points or whatever they're going to be 250 shorter points than diego schwartzman's played you know <laughs> like a return orientated player so you, you you've got to factor that type of thing as well for sure in my in my view definitely and is it fair to say there's kind of a bit of obviously we want to be proactive and, and look at data and kind of plan ahead and try and find that value initially but is there a kind of reactive element? Drew, you kind of touched upon it a little bit there. If you if you know a player is dragging out a game, they're kind of exhausted on court, are you straight away thinking, I've got to wait for the line to go up for that guy's next match, see what it is and see where the bookmaker's at? 
<laughs> yes. Well, it, in the back of my head at the Australian Open, some of my uh, some of my favorite wins were exactly that, <laughs> without without question. Uh, and uh, I'll have to go back and look at my results and see. But uh, you know, it's tennis is a grind. The market is efficient. It's really it's really difficult to kind of come up with a long term. You know you know, uh, a long-term uh, uh, strategy that uh, beats the market without having a couple freebies, so to speak. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I think you, you watch a lot of the tournament. I thought Dan's advice off the top was great. This is a marathon. Like there are two, this is two weeks of tennis and there are matches every single day. Uh, and if you take, if you're handicapping both the men's and women's side, double that. So this is, uh, you know, there are a lot of opportunities to find, find bets in this tournament. Um, and, uh, you know, from, from my standpoint, at least, uh, you, you're going to get a, you need a couple freebies. <laughs> you need a couple where you see a match that wasn't necessarily, um, uh, you know, wasn't necessarily one of the premier matches that everyone was watching and you happen to see a guy pick up an injury, but he won anyway. And so, you know, the next, you know, the next match, he's going up against a player that's going to move him around the court and, you know, they're, they're pricing it like both guys are, are fully fit and, you know, okay, well, this guy's going to move him around the court. I just saw him pick up a hamstring uh, injury in the last match. He's toast. Right. And then same thing for, okay, I just, I noticed that this guy played five hours in the heat uh, and they're pricing this next, next match. Like this is a neutral match. Uh, and you can take advantage of, of that. So I, you know, I think those are kind of ways to help uh, improve your overall performance on a given tournament over the course of the tournament. Uh, and, uh, and I'm just given that you're betting into a, a relatively efficient market, I think you really need those. And then we're kind of in a, a unique situation here. And obviously there's a devastating situation that's going on in Australia with the fires at the moment thoughts to anyone that's kind of impacted by that. But there is a lot of headlines around. I think there was a, a competitor on the women's draw the other day who had a, a coughing fit and had to retire. It's is there anything that that you need to think about for that and how that might impact how how things play out in Melbourne? That's a good question. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's going to have an impact. And obviously, we saw, like you say, we saw uh, Yakupovic. It was on the women's side who 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 had to pull out in the qualies against. I think it was against Stephanie Vogel. Um, so if if we look at some numbers here that I I bought I done in advance, um, in the last three years, so 2017 to 2019, there were 181 completed matches in the first round of the Australian Open compared to 189 in the French and 183 at Wimbledon and 177 at the US Open. So what that shows is that, for me anyway, that there's been more retirements in the Australian and the US in, and they're generally the tournaments with the most extreme heat. And where uh, that that's got, that's got an impact on players. Now I don't. I haven't looked at the forecast. I don't think the, the weather's supposed to be as hot next week, but there's going to be other conditions at, at play. And best of five sets is tough enough for men without having to deal with any you know, external breathing difficulties and stuff like that. So it, it's going to be difficult to see how players cope, but. I think that you're going to see players struggle in the fourth and fifth sets of matches really badly. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting obviously players won't try as much, but potentially maybe a case could be made that we might see players maybe adopting their style to try and check stay in games or to to not be impacted as much. Is that a valid point? Do you think or something to consider? Yeah, you you might see players like say say they're like two sets up and a breakdown. They might like tank the third set because. They're just trying to save their energy for for the fourth set, fifth set, whatever. It's, it's more than possible that you might see that, but, but again, it's so difficult to plan that sort of type of thing in advance. Really, it is. I would even go farther and say you may see players just tank entirely. <laughs> they may just take their take their check and uh, move on to the next part of the world because uh, yeah. they're not yeah, really right. interested in playing in this in these conditions. I mean, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> but and you know, and that may, that may that that may also open up opportunities for you know some of the uh, you know some of the lesser known players to really kind of make a run you know, grab some glory that, uh, that they otherwise wouldn't. So it, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm buckled in for a very weird Australian Open because of these conditions for sure. Um, and you know, the, I, you know, they, I, I would also say, you know, there are some players that I do think their style of play, um, generally helps them in these type of conditions. A player like Federer, his, 
his average rally length and his average, you know, his average game game length, his average match length is quite a lot shorter than a player like Nadal. You know, he is on he is on and off court much, much more quickly, especially in the earlier rounds. He doesn't tend to, you know, kind of mess around. I, I agree that Dan's point about early on, I'm a little uh, I'm a little bit concerned about his fitness just because he usually plays the Hopman Cup and has a couple of matches under him uh, before he gets to the Australian Open. And this year he's coming in completely untested. Um, but the uh, but, you know, his style of play, I do think, um, you know, is, is more advantageous. Uh, to these conditions than someone like Nadal and even someone like Djokovic. You know, Djokovic is clearly the best player in the world, even though he's the number two seed in this tournament and he's the number, uh, you know, number two overall worldwide. He is, you know, he's the overwhelming, you know, future, you know, future, uh, you know, market favorite and for and for good reason. Um, but he's also a player who, you know, we've seen throughout his, you know, his storied career, you know, when the conditions aren't great, he's a little bit out of shape. You know, he doesn't play his best. He's got a little bit of, um, you know, history, history with, uh, you know, um, uh, respiratory issues. And, you know, the idea that, uh, if there are, if there are, if there is pretty heavy particulate particulate in the air, uh, and you know, if he's having a, a, you know, a tough day or a tough match now, granted his draw didn't necessarily afford him very many tough matches, but that's a different, you know, different topic altogether. But, you know, all, you know, he, he lost, uh, you know, three years ago to Den- Dennis Eastomin in one of the most shocking upsets I've ever seen in Australia. And I thought that a lot of it was just he wasn't feeling great that day. Uh, and, you know, that that sort of thing can happen. And, um, you know, with Djokovic in, in general, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful. I have not backed Djokovic in this tournament. I think he is, uh, you know, overpriced to a degree. Um, but, you know, whilst at the same time recognizing he ought to be the clear and obvious favorite. Um, but a lot of the reason that I think there's probably value in the field over Djokovic at this time is because I think that uh, the air quality and just his style of play in general doesn't lend itself uh, quite as well for this year's weather and, and air, air quality as, as it would in other years. Yeah, we've got him at 2.10 at Pinnacle. Obviously, that's kind of around 46% chance of winning that. 17th Grand Slam he's actually come in from around 2.5 so maybe not one for you Drew but the market obviously seems interested is there what about you Dan is there is there value in that price for you uh it's one of those ones that you wouldn't want to back him but you wouldn't really want to take him on either that's kind of in line with what Drew said really about he's clearly the best hard quarter on tour um but but there's intangibles involved in this tournament as well, which makes it more interesting. You know, a lot of the Grand Slams in, in the last decade, you might you say, is almost like a closed shop between elite players. Whereas hopefully we might might see something a, a little more interesting in terms of, you know, a few more unheralded players making the latter stages. But, you know, we're going to have to see how it all pans out really regarding, you know, the intangible factors like the weather and the... Um, the breathing issues coming from the bush fires and stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's difficult to call in advance, I think. Yeah. We, we've got Rafael Nadal again, obvious, fairly, fairly obvious second favorite, but one may be interesting to know. Daniel Medvedev's name came up from you down a little while ago, opened up at 9.30, come into 7.29. Another one that the market's obviously big on. Pinnacle have also actually said that he's taken 15% of the total outright bets and, caveat there being that that's based on bet count not bet volume which is obviously crucial um is there is there any names that do jump out to to either of you two that potentially there's there's value on offer to play with them on on the hope that maybe Djokovic and and one of the other elite players don't turn up sure I'll go uh, I'll go first here I I personally think it is worth taking on Nadal at his price especially you know the way that the draw is shaped out Nadal is pretty much a standalone on the top half you know, you know, if you think of it in terms of there are three players with pedigree that have realistic chances of winning, and those three players are Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic. Um, well, Nadal has the advantage in that he's in the top half of the draw, and Federer and Djokovic are on the bottom half. So at some point, presumably, they're going to have to play each other. While Nadal could, you know, beat up on some of the uh, lesser opponents on tour on his way to the t- on the finals. Like that's basically how it's set up. That said, this is not a great tournament for Nadal. This is not a great surface for him. Uh, and uh, he consistently here comes up, you know, comes up uh, lame in you know, the second week of play just because the surface is not great for his knees. It's not great for his overall, uh, his overall game. Last year, he came into the, to the Australian Open with a, a new serve that was a surprise. It, and it afforded him the opportunity to make a deeper run last year than I expected. 
Uh, he looked good. He was, you know, he was threatening, but he still was not able to get uh, to get home. And I would expect that, you know, with him playing deep into last season's tour, he put a lot of miles on his body uh, last fall. He obviously uh, played um, a superlative U.S. Open, you know, really put a lot of his, uh, you know, his spirit into that run. Um, and carried that through to the to the end of the season instead of you know kind of taking a, a little bit of uh, you know a little bit of time to himself a little bit of time to recuperate uh, you know he really didn't give himself much of an off season here so I wouldn't be surprised at all if we seen the dog get uh, get surprised get upset get tested he's got a tough match to get out of his um, out of his section potentially against Nick Kyrgios if Kyrgios can even make it that far I guess um, but then you know the the um, you know, the quarterfinal matchup for him is going to be extremely tough. Uh, the section two, there are a number of players that I feel like have a legitimate shot in terms of giving him a run for his money. Uh, notably, uh, you know, a guy that he's you know had a number of contests with on clay and has gone head to head with them through the years. Dominic team uh, potentially comes out of the fourth, you know, out of the uh, section two there. Uh, and uh, an old, uh, an old standby. We haven't seen him a lot last season. Um, but who came, uh, you know, who, who had made a, a spectacular run at Wimbledon for, you know, for the UK listeners, they will remember this well. Uh, Kevin Anderson in the semifinals against Roger Federer two years ago at Wimbledon put together one of the most spectacular, you know, kind of marathon matches we've seen uh, and uh, came out and, you know, made it made his way to the uh, actually it might have been a quarterfinal. But either way, he made his way to oh, it, was, it was against Isner in the semifinals. So excuse me. Uh, but he beat he he eliminated Federer marathon match with Isner in the semifinal uh, and then lost to Djokovic in the final. Uh, and that kind of took a lot out of him. He ended up having to take most of last season off. So he's relatively fresh, I think, coming into 2020. He needs to get, um, you know, he needs to get points in this event to get his world ranking back up. So he had the rest of his 2020 season. He can have uh, be afforded some draws, get some titles, get some money here. Uh, and he's got a nice little spot here in Section 2, I feel. Uh, to make make a run, he's got a great head-to-head record against Dominic Team. If they match up in the third round, um, I don't especially love the form that we're seeing uh, from Gael Malfi at this point in the uh, in the season, uh, which I think opens up uh, a path for Kevin Anderson to make the quarterfinal. And if someone can upset Nadal, or if uh, if Kevin Anderson and Nadal meet in the quarterfinal, then I like uh, Kevin's chances quite a lot. And he's at 100 to one right now. Um, at some shops. So I think uh, I'm not sure what the price is right now at Pinnacle. Do you have Kevin Anderson handy? Best odds online, Drew, 109.31. There we go. I love it. So, <laughs> one on, yeah, 109 for Kevin Anderson, I think is worth a shout. Uh, I think, you know, Kevin Anderson played in the ATP Cup last week uh, and had a pretty, pretty, a very competitive match, I would say, with uh, Novak Djokovic. If you look at Djokovic, he played five matches last week. Uh, and I thought that he had to work the hardest to beat uh, Kevin Anderson, and that includes um, you know some matchups against some of the top players on tour. Uh, so I think Anderson's uh, is ripe for to make a little noise here, especially given how much time he got to take off in 2019 uh, and kind of rest and recuperate his body after a, a tough 20 you know a, a, after a grind in 2018. So um, I fancy Anderson a lot, quite at that 100 to one price. Uh, and then in the second quarter, I think there's a, a good shot that Stan Vavrinka can emerge. He's, uh, what is he at Pinnacle at this point? 60, 66-ish? 89.06. 89.06. Incredible. That is a great price. Uh, I'll, I, Stan Vavrinka obviously has the pedigree. He's won slams in the past. He can actually get you to the, you know, get you all the way to the final, uh, you know, realistically. And uh, he's, in my opinion, at least the... Uh, the top player in the second quarter in terms of experience, in terms of performance at this tournament, and in terms of, uh, you know, best of five, uh, you know, game. Uh, he's going to have to go through Daniel Medvedev, which is a little uh, concerning. But I, again, you know, Djokovic played Medvedev last week as well. I didn't think that, uh, you know, it was a, it, I think that that set was, it was a, was that three sets? It was a three, it was a best of three and it did go three. Um, but I didn't think that uh, Djokovic had to work uh, as hard to beat Medvedev as he did uh, to get by Kevin Anderson and Shapovalov and Nadal. So uh, I think uh, Medvedev is probably uh, a better look later on this season as opposed to this early, just because he played. He's a young guy. He played a lot of tennis late last year, uh, and he he's kind of a guy that I'm going to be watching out for 
for a potential early upset, uh, even though, you know, I, I really like his game. I really like his, uh, you know, opportunity to make a leap uh, over these next couple of years. I just don't see this being the tournament to do it. And we're solely audio here, but Dan, I could almost feel you nodding along when Drew was talking about Nadal there. Was that in agreement? Are you, how are you feeling on that? Yeah, I mean, I agree completely with what, what Drew said about it. He, you feel that he's vulnerable in these quicker conditions. Um, and, and I think, think Drew mentioned earlier that he's more sort of suited to the United States Open later on in the season than, than, than here in Australia. And I completely agree with that. Uh, the difficulty with Nadal is who you find to take him on. And uh, like, you know, Drew mentioned Kevin Anderson. Yeah, he, statistically, he's, he's certainly a player who has ability for sure. Uh, the only problem is obviously he hasn't played since July and apart from the you know, glorified exhibition in, in the ATP Cup last week where, where he did really well. I mean, taking Djokovic to two tie breaks in a competitive match was, was definitely definitely probably better than he expected himself in his first match back. And, and he beat Pear as well, who's done well subsequently this week in Auckland as well. Um, but, I mean, statistically, you'd say that, that Medvedev is the obvious one who would be able to upset the party. But... Until last year's US Open, he had, he had issues in the best of five set format and hadn't done very well in slams generally. Um, Isner's got ability, but the problem is is that serve, a very serve orientated style doesn't tend to manifest itself to grand slam success because you end up playing a lot more sets than than players who can be more dominant. Yeah. And, and and I think that that's that's been a perennial struggle for Isner over over his career. The the player I, that that stands out to me in terms of being on an upward curve uh, from an ability perspective, he's young, he's getting better. His six month data is improving, uh, and he's done well this season so far. But I just worry that he's played far too much in these last two weeks. Is Andre Rublev, and um, he's 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 going to be back to back finals for him. So. He's probably played played a little bit too much in advance of a Grand Slam, uh, and and you worry if he's going to be able to go back to back to back for sure. Um, but he's got two very very what you would think on the surface at least would be straight straightforward matches in the first two rounds against O'Connell and Sajita potentially. Uh, but then he's got Goffin in the third round, and Goffin Goffin's obviously a capable player as well. Um, yeah, it's tough. It's tough to know who to take take to take players on with. Kyrgios's stats aren't great on return, particularly, which is another concern for you know his consistency wise. He's just not there. But then he does have that top gear to trouble the the elite players, which not many other players do have. But the problem is, is in tournaments, is he often gets knocked out before he gets a chance to play against them. So it's 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 so difficult to find a player. You would say, okay, you know what? He's really mispriced and and I'm confident that I can find value in him to take on Nadal. But yeah, the the basic premise of taking on Nadal is something that I definitely agree with. And then if we look over to the, the women's tournament, it's kind of a complete contrast, really. Instead of, instead of everything being tight at the top of the market, you've got Serena Williams at 4.55. Ashley Barty, obviously, on home soil, second favourite, 8.08. But... It's pretty wide open right down the list. And it, it seems like that's been, we kind of talked earlier about these elite guys at the top of the men's game. It's kind of been the opposite for the women in terms of like, you can take your pick from from people that might turn up and play a good tournament. Or obviously Serena Williams had a signs of promise. Osaka's looked decent, but out of the people in the draw, is there anyone from the, the women's side in terms of the outrights that you're looking towards for a value play? From my perspective you almost have to do a process of elimination because it's like you said like there's a lot of women who are entirely um you know skilled enough qualified enough playing well enough uh to be considered realistic title winners here uh so you really have to kind of carefully winnow your way down to um you know the handful that have a legitimate you know who, who have a favorable draw or uh you know favorable matchups here and I think it's worthwhile um, expecting Barty to win quarter one. Uh, obviously, home favorite, number one seed. I thought she got a very favorable draw. There's really only one woman in her quarter. 
who I think will she'll have a, potentially have a, a difficulty with, and that's uh, Allison Risk potentially in the fourth round. Allison Risk has been playing quite well lately, and uh, that should be a good match there. In her quarterfinal, whoever comes out of that section two, I think she will make uh, quick work of. So I would say Barty is a good look to get to the uh, semifinals. Section, you know, the the, the quarter quarter two is absolutely stacked. There, you know, there are four or five women in that one quarter there who are entirely realistic title winners, let alone quarter winners. Uh, and in fact, you know, probably the two kind of considered co-favorites, last year's champion, Naomi Osaka, and uh, obviously greatest women's tennis player of all time, Serena Williams, both in that quarter, which means, you know, likely they are going to find themselves in a quarterfinal and one, you know, one's going to get eliminated. So if you have a, a strong edge between those two, um, then that's probably your most likely finalist from the top half of the draw. Um, but, you know, really like the, the uncertainty there and, um, you know, the, you know, the, just the prices themselves not being especially favorable, I've kind of enti- you know, ignored the top half entirely. Um, just kind of let it play out, let them beat each other up, and you know, whoever emerges, emerges. And I've been looking, try to, try to pick some value off of the bottom half of the draw here for the women's side. I think um, number two overall seed in this one, uh, Carolina Pliskova, who has never won a slam, noted, you know, noted uh, uh, favorite in a couple of slams in the past several years and just completely underperformed. Uh, you know, I think uh, that has really depressed her price. Um, I think is she still at about 10 to 1 or so? Get it now, Pliskova, yeah, 10.1. Yeah, that's, I, think that's, I think that's very, very fair value on Pliskova just because she's never done it and so people don't think she can do it um meanwhile she's got an you know she's been afforded a very fair draw here i think that uh, there's really no one in uh in the fourth quarter here that is especially concerning in terms of a matchup standpoint and i kind of liked what i saw you know we we talked about like you kind of need to see little things here and there to kind of give you an edge in these very very efficient markets and these very you know um uh, very popular and you know widely bet and watched tournaments, and I saw something in Plushkova's uh, um, you know first tournament of the season, which I think is actually which is this and this is a little tinfoil hatty. This is a little weird, um, but uh, she's always suffered in slams in my opinion because she hasn't had on court coaching. Uh, she's someone who has always kind of needed that because. Um, you know, when things are going sideways for her in match, she will kind of get down on herself and she'll, you know, she'll lose matches that she otherwise should win just from a skill standpoint. And, you know, in the first, uh, first match of the, uh, uh, you know, first tournament of the season, she, she was playing well, she was beating her opponent, she won the first set and her coach comes down on court and it was basically like, you're playing crap, you're playing awful, like what's wrong with you, you know, and just in, instead of giving her like, lots of positive reinforcement was just kind of effectively you know, training her to, you know, play through, uh, you know, someone, you know, who is giving her, a, a, you know, adverse coaching, right, which I think, I think was that was a specific strategy to try to help her prepare for, you know, how it will be when she has no one there to except for her own kind of inner monologue uh, in an actual best, of, you know, a slam kind of setting. So I think uh, just that little bit of um, you know, kind of divorcing herself from having someone holding her hand on court in you know, in tournaments that aren't slams uh, is is a good uh, kind of development step step that could help her along with uh, a relatively uh, soft draw. I mean, there's really no one on the whole bottom half of the draw that I think matches up especially well with her game. Uh, and I think she gets to the final. And, uh, you know, this is a th- those are the kind of ideal setups when you're looking for an outright market. You have someone in the 10 to 1 range who you think is clearly the most talented player on their half of the draw. And they're going to go up against someone potentially in the final who's going to be gassed because they're going to have to go and do it themselves by beating all of the toughest players in the, you know, in the draw. And that, that's that, that's what we could be facing if we're looking at, a, say, a Serena Pliskova final or a, or a Osaka Pliskova final. And what about you, Dan? Anyone that jumps out for you? Yeah, there's a few. Um, first of all, probably the first thing we've disagreed with the whole the whole podcast is Q2. Um, I personally would be really, really surprised if Serena or Osaka didn't win the quarter. I think that they're kind of streets above everyone else in the quarter. Um, and Serena, I think, my numbers still have her as the best player on, on tour 
especially without Andreescu in this tournament, she's the best player in the tour on tour by some distance, uh, and on hardcore at least. And I actually think that, 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 that she's decent value at the top of the market, to be honest with you. Um, her, I, I, her, I think her stats are actually better than her results last year, and, and it, it wouldn't surprise me if she won another slam, to be honest with you. Um, and that's maybe a bit un- unoriginal, but I, I actually think that she's by far the outstanding player in the field. Um, as far as like long shots go, I've got a few few names that that, that listeners might want to keep an eye out for. Um, in Q1, uh, I quite like. I mean, she's got to get past Kvitova in the third round, but Ekaterina Alexandrova is in great form right now. Her level is improving on a on a on a rapid basis. Uh, and she's available at a very, very juicy price, triple digits, I think. And um, she, she, she's gone from strength to strength in the last few months. And, and, and her numbers in the in the last six months generally compared to almost anyone on tour. Maybe in a slightly lower uh, opposition quality, but she's really, really improving. And at a big price, I think, that, that she's got ability. Um, and then in the bottom half of the draw, another player who's improved quite a bit over the last few months which doesn't really surprise me because her her she was running bad in terms of variance in the last, in the first six months of 2019, not not winning enough key points basically, which tends to correct itself in the long run. Is Elise Mertens, who, whose whose serve numbers in particular have improved quite a bit over the last few months. Um, now she's got you would think a relatively straightforward first couple of rounds before a potential third round match against Karolina Machova, who's a very serve-orientated uh, player from Czech Republic, who is another player that I really like, but has, is coming in a little bit cold into the, the tournament in terms of match preparation. So I think that Mertens, uh, unless something goes wrong before that third round match, should be a slight favourite over, over Machova. Um, and then in the fourth quarter, probably my, my, my favourite one is Marketa Vondrasova. Um stats wise she's got better hardcore data than Pliskova and the other players in the quarter in the last 12 months on hardcore albeit from a slightly small sample size the, the drawback with her is that she didn't play much after July last year so people might be a bit scared of her fitness however she competed really really well this week um she dropped only four games in the first two matches uh, in the tournament this week she played in and then lost to Ash Barty, which is no disgrace. But if you look at the underlying data for that match, actually Yvonne Sobel had more breakpoint chances than Barty, but it's lost his straight set. So what for me that tells me is that she's actually playing at, at a decent level, very, very yeah, considerable level. She gave Barty a good game. She took her chances. It could have been a different outcome. And you're getting, obviously, a considerably bigger price on, on Vondrasova than you are on Barty and, and are on all the other big names like Pliskova, Svitolina, Kerber, Magrifa, etc. in that fourth quarter. So when we're, we're talking about these players at such big prices, obviously we're relying on a little bit of luck to get them through and some some decent performances. Is there is the, the approach here thinking about that potential hedge as the tournament rolls on or, or are you sticking to your guns and, and playing out the, the price that you've taken? I guess I'll, I, I will kind of tell you a little my strategy. I, I go into this with kind of, okay, here's the tier of price that I'm backing and I'm expecting that player to make it this far in order to extract some value in some way. Um, and if you're backing someone in the, you know, the, the hundred to one range, then you need them to get at least to the fourth round, realistically at the quarterfinal, uh, to get some kind of value out of that. And if it's someone in the 50 to one range, then quarterfinals or semis, and it's, it's someone in the 20 to one range, then you need them to, you know, kind of get them to the, uh, semis or finals. Um, and then, you know, there's, and then there's a totally different approach going if you're backing anyone, shorter than about 20 to one, you're, you're thinking like, okay, this person has an especially realistic chance of, of realizing this, you know, this, uh, this win, uh, and only would ever consider, uh, coming back with some sort of, uh, arbitrage opportunity in the final if they get there. Yeah. I mean, I think it's quite a dynamic situation really. It's, it's really difficult to kind of 
have any sort of preconceived ideas what you're going to do in advance as well because these outright markets really focus on the, the shortening of the prices focuses on some of the players at the top of the market getting beat and 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 we don't know you know if, for example if you if you're if you're picking a player at 75 or 100 to 1 or whatever you you've you've got you've their price at, in the fourth round or the quarterfinal could be wildly different. You know, if Serena's knocked out or, or in the men's, if, if if one of the big three goes, that has a massive impact on that on that player's price, particularly if it's in their segment of the draw as well. So it, it's it's really is a dynamic situation, and I think you've got to bear in mind you've got to look at the individual match odds as well before you're making that kind of decision. Well, I think, unfortunately, that's that's probably all we've got time for today. I think it went pretty well for a, a first episode. Some great thoughts from you both. Thanks for joining me and, and giving our listeners something to think, think about before the, the first Grand Slam of the year. I really enjoyed it. And thanks to everyone for listening. Remember, this is one of many podcasts brought to you by Pinnacle. You can visit SoundCloud or subscribe on iTunes and Spotify to listen to the rest of our offering. We've also been nominated for the Smart Betting Club Best Betting Podcast Award. So click on the link in description and cast your vote. And if you want to bet on the Australian Open, head over to pinnacle.com. We've got all the latest odds. And of course, you'll benefit from Pinnacle's low margins and high limits. As always, please remember to gamble responsibly. 